This is the feeling I've been searching for my entire life. In season two, episode one of HBO's angsty teen drama, Euphoria, Nate, the show's angry, tortured jock, and Cassie, the best friend of Nate's ex, drive to a party. This two and a half minute scene has barely a word of dialogue, but it expertly crafts a feeling. Unlike in traditionally filmed car scenes where the camera is often in the back seat or in front of the windshield, the camera here is in the front seat, smack in between the two, catching every glance and feeling the tension build. As Nate drinks and drives and keeps going faster, Cassie looks between Nate and the speedometer, becoming visibly scared of the speed or of Nate or both. Cassie adjusts her short dress while Nate watches, and the fearful thrill of the ride is implicitly connected to the personal danger that getting involved with each other represents to these characters, as is also underlined in the brief two-sentence setup leading into the scene. Because I keep making mistakes and not learning from them. Would you like a ride to this party? Suddenly, the car jolts, Cassie's beer spills into her lap, and there's a release of tension. Cassie's fear evaporates. She takes off her underwear, enjoying Nate watching her, and she leans out the car window and into the danger. In a different show, this reckless drunk driving scene might have been the lead-up to a horrible car accident, Nate getting arrested or punished, or at least some kind of direct confrontational conversation. But in Euphoria, the car scene doesn't lead to any logical consequence. It doesn't matter what happened after the ride. What matters is how the ride felt. The next time we see Cassie and Nate, they're f***ing in the bathroom at the party, and again, there isn't a clear plot consequence. They're interrupted by Maddie, who almost catches them, but doesn't. But these two scenes are emotionally connected, almost as one sequence. That mix of excitement and fear in the car ride is the same feeling Cassie has about hooking up with Nate and betraying her best friend. So this irresistibly dangerous car ride is essentially a metaphor for this beginning relationship. Just looking closer at this one scene shows us how well Euphoria understands two crucial things about adolescence. The first is that when you're a teenager, feelings outweigh consequences. That's why it's almost impossible not to act on them. And the second truth is that relationships are life and death. These two truths in combination make everything both disorienting and perilous, because as we see in the car scene, those all-important feelings can shift on a dime. Euphoria is often discussed as being unrealistic. People poke fun at the insane outfits and makeup the characters wear to school, or the way that it suggests today's teens are constantly having sex, drinking, and doing drugs, when the facts report that young people are doing all three less than they did in previous eras. But realism isn't the point. Euphoria's creator, Sam Levinson, and DP, Marcel Rev, said they instead set out to create a kind of emotional realism. In other words, a cinematographic sensibility in which things we see aren't necessarily truly as they are, but are truly as they feel. When you're a teenager, even if you're not acting like most of these characters, everything feels overwhelming and intense. Oh, she needs a f***ing exorcism. Accordingly, the close-ups in Euphoria are tight and anguished, and the lighting is moody, full of highly aestheticized colors that seem to paint the characters' moods onto the surroundings. The visual's opulent slow motion and swooping camera capture the sense that your reality is always dynamic and shifting, almost exhaustingly dramatic. Here's our take on the visual language of Euphoria's emotional realism, and how each technique in the show's repertoire is used to communicate the grand, urgent, sometimes demonic feelings of being young. Sam wanted to 
to make a, a show about teenagers that looks like how they imagine themselves. It's not about just being cool or innovative in a way, but more like uh, being really personal. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and click the bell to get notified about all our new videos. There's a reason we call colored light mood lighting. Strong feelings can tint the entire world around you. We speak of viewing the world through rose-colored glasses, seeing red, or seeing things in black and white. And these expressions reveal just how much we naturally use colors as metaphors to express our feelings. Rev says the intense light in Euphoria is meant to match the heightened emotions of the show. It has to be colorful in a way, I think, to feel that elevation. He's clarified that the color scheme overall is still consistently stemming from real-world orange and blue contrasting light sources, saying we didn't want it to go like rainbow colors or with no real system in it. But building on this connection to the way light typically looks in real life, the show's visual language draws out colors that establish emotional states. We had reached out to Kodak to see if they could remake Ektachrome for us, because we both love that film stock. Nate's room is an uninterrupted cold blue-gray with all the warmth sucked out of it, matching the lack of love in Nate's home and how that's reflected in his militaristic self-discipline. In other scenes that deal with Nate and his father's aggression and warped ideas about masculinity, the palette deepens into a pulsing purple and red. Rue's home has both warm gold and deep shadows, mirroring how her family is warm, but her addiction brings darkness into their lives. And sometimes, like in the pilot, when Rue's high or getting high with jewels, we leave this blue-orange binary completely for disembodied brighter colors, representing that pure feeling or euphoria that she's chasing. However, the ability to be untethered from reality is illusory and fleeting, and in the scenes where Rue is fighting with her family about her drug use, the visuals again look more realistic because reality inevitably returns. And while the show has been accused of glamorizing drug use because of the way Rue's feelings about drugs may be romanticized, the pain she causes herself and her family is presented with brutal accuracy. You just got me thinking about what that does to a 13-year-old, a 13-year-old kid. It finds her big sister overdosed. In many films and shows, the camera more or less follows the logic of the human eye, becoming a neutral feeling near invisible entity we might forget is there. But Euphoria's camera is a flamboyant character, which, like these teens' lives, is almost always in motion. It pans and tilts and zooms around like some kind of ghostly snake, gliding in a steady curve or following characters in long, fluid tracking shots. As Sam Levinson told Vulture, when the camera is moving, it's always on tracks or on a dolly. We do very little handheld camera work. The resulting smooth motion captures how the characters' emotional lives bleed into everything without clear boundaries. So many film and TV scenes we watch are like dialogue, a shot-reverse shot where one person says something, the other replies. Euphoria's montage is like an emotional, wordless monologue, mirroring how Rue's narrated interior life is projected onto and absorbs everything. She loved the ritual, the attention to detail, the anxiety and excitement she felt in her stomach. It was her way of telling him that she was his. One inspiration for Euphoria's camera movement Levinson cites is Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 film Magnolia, which opens with a series of loosely interconnected tracking shots. 
there's a poetry to these fluid camera montages. Whereas we're used to a lot of visual storytelling that follow the logic of prose, A happens, so then B happens, when images are organized by a common rhythm, it's harder to approach them cerebrally. Instead, you have to let them carry you wherever they are headed. Then, as with the dramatic lighting that occasionally goes neutral, the camera in Euphoria makes a point of standing still when the subject matter demands it. Levinson described that when filming sex scenes, the camera is still and we're getting a sense of what the characters are thinking and feeling to allow for the discomfort and nervousness you feel when you're having sex as a young person. The practical purpose of slow motion is to catch fast motion, but it also has a powerful emotional effect. It makes movement graceful and beautiful. It also makes things that might otherwise seem prosaic or easily missed feel deeply significant. When something important is happening, our brains tend to take in more details. Slow motion kind of reverse engineers this process. It includes more details by increasing the number of frames, and that signals to our brains that what we're witnessing is important. In Wong Kar Wai's iconic film In the Mood for Love, a woman walks down a flight of stairs, and the combination of slow motion, music, and the camera's gaze, which seems to be lowered almost in deference, tells us that this moment is significant before we learn why. Martin Scorsese's films often include a slow motion sequence introducing a beautiful woman that the male protagonist will become obsessed with while seeing her from a certain unhealthily idealized distance. Euphoria uses slow motion a lot to communicate how for young people it can feel like you have these dramatic, life-changing moments constantly. It's why the characters, and perhaps the viewers if they binge too much at once, can feel a little exhausted by the constant overwhelm of moments that feel ultra-significant and over-the-top. As Matt Zoller Seitz wrote for Vulture, you might call it too much if too muchness wasn't the whole point. There are also one-off shots Euphoria uses at times to pinpoint emotion. There's the time-stood-still shot, when a character is motionless but surrounded by frenetic activity. This trick is often used in and-then-our-eyes-met type scenes. But Euphoria uses the technique to communicate other emotions too, Cassie's fear of Maddie, or Nate being frozen in discomfort. Overhead shots like this one where we only see Jules and Rue, even though they're in a public space, can communicate how they've shut everything out in order to be in their own little world. Other overheads will have a character perfectly centered and sometimes quite still, often in their room, reflecting that dramatic teen feeling of your misery being at the center of the universe, like in that TikTok meme. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. Euphoria's teens and teens throughout time are always the main characters of their own lives. I know that I never, uh, I never really said it before, but I want to be with you. A spotlight here tells us little Jules is both literally and figuratively in the spotlight because she's feeling lonely, scared, and judged. When Rue spots Jules, a spotlight comes on again, but this time it's more about Rue's love. Jules is in a halo, like an angel. At a party in Season 2, Episode 1, we get these bright flashes, which have a paparazzi glamour to them, but could also remind us of the kind of memory flashbacks that tend to surface after a blackout. Close-ups in Euphoria are often even tighter than a normal close-up, with the face not fitting in the screen, really making us focus on the character's expressions. When the close-ups are completely silent, which they often are, they give us more time to study the face and infer the feeling. In actual silent cinema, close-ups have a special place, since without dialogue, the actors have to communicate through pure emotion. 
Levinson actually cites as inspiration the silent film The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer, which is known for its stunningly affecting close-ups of Rene Falconetti's face portraying young Joan of Arc's beautiful suffering. As Levinson put it, passionate close-ups, where you feel like you're sort of breathing with the characters. According to Levinson, around 70% of Euphoria is shot on sets, which are created with the shot choreography in mind. Quote, if you look at the last shot of the pilot, you see the two of them lying in bed. You see the ceiling, and slowly our camera moves up and over them. The ceiling is actually just on hinges, operated with ropes, so that the ceiling could come off and the camera could get above them. In season one, episode four, in an almost two minute sequence where the camera glides around following the characters at a fairground, Levinson said to create this visual dance, they brought in a bunch of rides from all over California and Arizona and built them around our shots. The camera moved along the 400 feet of dolly track that snaked through the set. Then there are the special effects sets, the spinning hallway for when Rue is very high, tumbling from wall to wall Inception style. They built this room that rotated completely around and you have no sense of where the real world is in comparison to where you are. The spinning bed in which Jules and Rue nest in love. Together with the camera movements, these sets create a certain artificiality, making us aware we're watching some constructed version of a character's reality. When the camera tracks a character, we see the rooms in cross-section. When we zoom out far enough from Rue's room, we see all the rooms in her home from above. When we pivot from Nate's front door to his second floor window, it's like we're peeping into the window of a dollhouse where a little toy has been centered and posed. Seeing the set is something that happens a lot in plays, a fact that we're reminded of when Lexi stages a play and the sets fade in and out of the reality of the audience watching the play, as well as the reality of scenes that Lexi drew on to write the play. And at times, the base reality in Euphoria can feel unreal or schematic like a play. Yet strangely, this can make the emotions feel more real and raw. It's similar to how Impressionism and Expressionism can, for some of us, capture something more truthful than the surface natural reality. Euphoria's soundtrack, a mix of modern hits, pop classics, and a gorgeous score by singer-songwriter Labyrinth, is loud and center stage. Nate's theme is angry and desperate. Jules' theme is magical and childlike. There are scenes in which an entire song plays out without a single word of dialogue, like in a music video. As the Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards put it, music is a language that doesn't speak in particular words, it speaks in emotions. In these long musical sequences with no dialogue to act, the actors can only express themselves through emoting, drawing our attention to whatever they're telling us with their faces and bodies. So we get what are essentially musical interludes of pure emotion, whether it's empowerment, resolve, or pain, like in this scene where Cassie and Cal are both in their own respective miseries. Cal turns on Sinead O'Connor's Drink Before the War on a jukebox, while Cassie in her home sings along to it. The scenes aren't narratively linked, but they are emotionally linked. At this moment, both Cal and Cassie are drunk and in pain over lost loves. Euphoria understands, too, that we relate most when we're invited into the character's emotions this way, rather than being told about them. Telling us what Cassie and Nate feel through the visceral, erotic, speeding car scene includes us in the feeling, and the risky, irresistible, magnetic pull that's drawing them together. 
faster-paced fantasy or questionable memory sequences take up a large chunk of Euphoria's runtime. Take a look at Season 2, Episode 3. It begins with a 15-minute flashback to young Cal and the beginnings of his painful, closeted existence. Next, we're with Rue, who is bouncing around somewhere between fantasy and reality. Call me irresponsible. Singing Sinatra doesn't seem like something Rue would do, but then Rue on drugs is a different person, or perhaps this dance is just a representation of how joyful Rue feels back on drugs. Then we launch into a fantasy sequence of lessons from Rue, kind of an informal recurring series on the show. Step one, find a cover drug. Just a few minutes later, Jules is questioning Elliot about his sexuality, holding a spotlight up to his face. So you're straight? Kinda. Are you gay? Kinda. And it's not clear if this is actually a very dramatic reality or a very realistic fantasy. Then we're back in fantasy land. Lexi imagines herself being interviewed about her work. I am the writer, director, and creator of This Is Life. And soon after that, Cassie imagines herself exploding and telling everyone about her and Nate. You two were broken up for three weeks and three days before we even had sex, so I didn't betray you! Between the fantasies and the omniscience of the however unreliable narrator, we have pretty much infinite access to the character's innermost thoughts and feelings. You like tennis skirts and jean cutoffs, but not the kind so short you can see the pockets. Rue has a beautiful and funny fantasy in which she imagines herself and Jules as iconic lovers through the ages. John and Yoko, Rene Magritte's lovers, Jack and Rose, Ennis and Jack, and it captures how when you're a teen, your love story is the love story, the greatest of all time. Because in Euphoria, subjectivity is the point, plot development isn't a central factor. There might be a long emotional buildup and no payoff, sometimes to an extreme, that can be frustrating. Time and time again, we're sure Rue will get hurt. Even if you don't have money, you've still got something people want. But she doesn't. Are we just dropping the whole Lori storyline? Who's Lori? There's a famous principle in drama called Chekhov's gun, because Russian playwright Anton Chekhov once said, essentially, that if a gun is seen in Act 1, it will go off in Act 3. But so many proverbial Chekhov's guns in Euphoria do not go off. Because in Euphoria, it's about the feeling of knowing the gun is hanging there. Then, when major things do happen, they often seem to come out of nowhere. How long have you been f***ing Nate Jacobs? And this reflects our real lives. We are introduced to countless details and possible dangers only to be blindsided by the one we didn't see coming. The series also spends a lot of time with characters getting ready, looking in the mirror, not really doing anything significant. Yet these are moments that we all recognize from living them all day, and they're moments in which we process, look at ourselves, or think ahead to the events we're anticipating. A similar thing happens in the many scenes where a character is biking somewhere. Like anyone who bikes knows, the repetitive thought movement of spinning the pedals creates the perfect state for processing emotions and thinking about things. Shows about teens classically underline how every wrong decision has to be answered with a just punishment or lesson from the universe, almost like in those retro after-school specials. Even more enlightened or inclusive modern teen shows can be very message-driven. You need to establish a clear verbal intercourse. And the plotline of a teen throws a party that gets out of hand is so omnipresent, it's basically its own trope. Do I know you? So often, shows about young people are hyper-gritty or moralizing, implicitly judging their characters from a distance, or feeling the obligation to educate viewers into making better, more moral decisions. 
But instead of focusing on the outcomes of bad choices, Euphoria tries to understand what feelings drive people to make bad choices, sometimes over and over, despite knowing they shouldn't. Every time I feel good, I think it'll last forever. But it doesn't. And doing this, and without judgment, is an important aspect of giving life and validity to the teen experience on screen. The show captures how teen feelings are a special breed. There's a grandiosity in being young. Everything that happens to you feels like it's never happened to anyone before. Here, the mirror and roses and pose and camera angle and movement make Cassie the living definition of that teen thing where you admire your own suffering. This isn't narcissism, or if it is, it's a kind of special developmental narcissism that nearly everyone has growing up. The teenage brain simply is naturally self-centered, and it has a poor grasp of time, so it feels like everything will last forever. It was just who he was and who he'd always be. This lack of perspective, in combination with high risk tolerance and impulsivity, accounts for the number of dumb things teenagers do. And the show captures this better than most, because it lets us live in that emotional reality and understand it. Euphoria is a show named after an emotion, and its tagline is feel something. It may not replicate reality, but it gives visual form to feelings created by reality. So if feeling is the shaper of all our life's experience, then maybe it's the realest thing of all. The world went quiet, and I felt safe in my own head. This video was written by friend of the take, Anya Formozova. If you liked the ideas here, you can check out her channel, Q22, for more interesting cultural insights. Oh, hi, friends. This is The Take, and all of your favorite movies, TV shows, and pop culture. Don't forget to subscribe. And ring the bell for notifications. We're gonna need a bigger screen.